Scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you in peace from God our Father. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for the word that you have given to us, for the scriptures that come to us with authority and with power, and may we submit ourselves to your word this day, and indeed humble us before this word from the Apostle Paul, direct us by the Spirit and the truth, and grant us wisdom, insight, and understanding that we may honor and glorify you in the obedient lives that we pursue. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Small towns and cities, they dot our maps and improve road trips when passed through or explored. They're the stuff of country songs, even as Montgomery Gentry sang about a number of years ago. And every once in a while, you'll come to a town that boasts being the birthplace of a particular celebrity, whether a singer or athlete, or the the town will be famous for something. Belzona, Mississippi calls itself the catfish capital of the world. And Dothan, Alabama, fashions itself as the peanut capital of the world, though neither town is particularly large, with Dothan's population being about 7,000 and Belzona about 2,000. Of course, there are cases and circumstances where a town or city might have once been thriving, but diminishes for one reason or another. The change in travel that came about from the railroad to motor vehicles affected towns and cities all over the country. Similarly, the changes that came about with the implementation of the interstate system in the United States also affected cities and towns. You know, the popular song Route 66, first recorded by Nat King Cole, recounts how to get from Chicago, Illinois, to Los Angeles, California, and, the, and recounts the cities you pass through in order to get there along Route 66. And of course, Route 66 still exists today, but it isn't the primary way to get from Chicago to L.A., For those who have seen the original Cars movie, you'll recall the story of the the little town Radiator Springs that had once been thriving when Route 66 was the main road for travel, but then declined after the interstate was put in place bypassing the town. Well, there's something of that in the history of Colossae, the city where the church to whom the Apostle Paul is writing was located. In the 6th century B.C., the city flourished and was, according to the historian Xenophon, visited by Cyrus the Great on his way to Greece. Herodotus similarly recounts that Xerxes uh, came to Colossae, and it was a city of great size. Colossae was a trading center in the region known as Phrygia and shared in the wool trade with Laodicea, a city about 10 miles to the north. The name Colossae was derived from a Latin name meaning purple wool. But by the first century A.D., when Paul wrote his letter, Colossae was no longer a great city. So what happened? Well, the Romans relocated a a road or put in a road leading north to Pergamum, which benefited Laodicea, but not Colossae. Uh, The seven churches mentioned in John's Revelation were all found um, along different parts of this Roman road. So no longer, a ma- on a, no longer on a major trade route, Colossae grew smaller over time, which was the case when Paul wrote his epistle probably sometime in the early 50s. 
Interestingly enough, about a decade later, Colossae was destroyed by an earthquake. But Colossae, the once thriving city, now turned small town, receives a letter from the Apostle Paul. And that's something. You know, Colossae is forever remembered, having its name found in the pages of Scripture in, the Holy, in this Holy Spirit-inspired letter. And as a church that is presently located in a small town, certainly Paul's teaching applies, has plenty to say to us, and it does. The theology of Colossians is quite marvelous, though Paul's occasion for writing is somewhat debated. There doesn't seem to be a pressing concern that Paul is addressing, such as you find in Galatians, but he still gives warnings, which may be more preventative in nature, telling the Colossians to be on the lookout or wary of certain forms of false teaching. Furthermore, we know that this is one of Paul's prison letters, though which imprisonment isn't precisely known. Given Timothy's presence, as well as that of Epaphras, Paul may have been writing from Ephesus, which was uh, about 100 miles west of Colossae, along the coast of Asia Minor. Uh, Asia Minor would be part of modern-day Turkey. The structure of the letter can be broken down in multiple ways, though there's likely a chiastic structure to it, not surprisingly, with the center fittingly being found at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, where the themes of death and resurrection are found. But if we were to ask what's the main theme of Colossians, what's, what Paul's primarily concerned about, what might the answer be? Maturity. Christian maturity. The kind of maturity that comes with being in Christ. Now remember, growing up is the point, arguably, of the whole Bible. But recall what Paul writes in Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Jesus is our older brother. He is the man. And we want to grow up and be like him. And Paul, along with the rest of the Bible, has a lot to say about what that looks like. But it's a primary focus in this letter. So let's consider the opening verses of Paul's letter, which constitute the greeting. And there's more for us here than we might, uh, we might first think. And we do well to linger in just these two verses this morning. How does the letter begin? Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Uh, unlike modern letter writing that places the letter writer's name at the end, in the ancient world, quite obviously, the author's name appears at the beginning in the salutation. And Paul mentions his apostleship first thing. Why might he do that? Well, for one, it establishes his authority, his place within the church, a position he was rightly given by Jesus himself as is well established in the book of Acts. And what did it mean to be an apostle? Well, the word apostle can simply mean sent one, uh, but this office in the early church, of course, means more than that. An apostle was also like an ambassador, meaning that he not only represented the authority by which he was sent, but also bears the authority of that sending party. You know, by way of an example, an ambassador of the United States in another country represents the United States in that country and is to be treated with a measure of respect but also has delegated authority to make decisions on behalf of the United States in that country. 
Or if we think of examples in history when an ambassador was sent to a particular ruler, whether to negotiate peace, request a surrender, or whatever the circumstances may have been, that ambassador was sent with a job to accomplish and could declare war or peace as if he were the king or emperor. And part of why Paul may be making his apostleship clear at the outset is on account of the fact that he hadn't been to Colossae. This wasn't a church he'd established. Likely it was founded through the labors of Epaphras, who was from Colossae. He planted a church in his hometown, we might say. So here is Paul the Apostle taking the time to write to these believers, to this church. But he's not just any apostle, but an ambassador of Christ Jesus. And the name Christ means the Anointed One, the Messiah, a term deeply rooted in the Old Testament Scriptures, in the life of Israel. It's a title, and Paul puts that title first before using the name of Jesus. And the fact that Paul uses that title and name means that the Colossians have received the gospel, that they know who this Jesus is, which of course they do. But also notice that Paul is sure to state that his apostleship is according to, is by means of the will of God. It's from the Father. Paul's apostolic commission comes from heaven itself. And whether we are to understand Paul's use of the will of God as encompassing the broader purpose and plan of God for the world, with the church as an instrument of continuing the work of new creation, or in a narrower sense, uh, more specific to Paul's circumstance, nevertheless, those perspectives are connected. You know, the ministry of reconciliation, as articulated by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, for which he was an ambassador, flows down into the life of the church, into the life of each and every individual believer who has been reconciled to God in Christ. And whatever part you may have to play, according to the will of God, then you fulfill the role of reconciliation to which you've been called in the station in which you find yourself. And hopefully that's encouraging to each of us in our respective callings, even as we consider Paul's own calling according to the will of God. And Paul is like Jesus in submitting to the Father's will. And it's for us to imitate them and do the same. But, but Paul's not alone in this opening verse, is he? No, he mentions Timothy, the brother. Timothy was a young minister, tutored by Paul, was a companion with him in his journeys, and was with Paul for much of his Ephesian ministry. Paul was a father in the faith to Timothy in many respects. But here Paul calls him a brother, which connotes familial ties. But of course, is referring to him as a brother in their shared faith in the Lord Jesus. The church as a new family, even as prescribed by Jesus as those who do the will of God, is in view here. Even as Paul is recognizing the bond they have in the Lord, which is stronger, even more important, than that of blood. And as honored as a place that Timothy has with Paul in calling, him, in calling Timothy a brother, what does that indicate that Timothy is not? An apostle. Timothy is not an apostle. He doesn't hold the same office in the church as does Paul. The apostolic office was held by a select few, and that was it. And there's no apostolic succession. There's no passing down of a special authority over the generations as some in other parts of the church would contend. Now, the apostles wrote the New Testament, and that in Scripture. Jesus spoke with authority, not as the scribes. Paul also spoke with authority. 
those of us who come after are in a similar position to the scribes. We don't have the authority as did Jesus or Paul or the other apostles, but the Bible does, and it's our job to say what it says. Also, the presence of Timothy serves the purpose that Paul's testimony has another witness. And so Paul and Timothy's message, their gospel declaration is confirmed. They're in agreement, which is further reason for the Colossians to give heed to what Paul has to say. Well, let's move into verse 2 and see what we find there. And here the English translations clean up things uh, a bit too much, and we miss uh, some of the subtle beauty in Paul's writing. Now, the word order is fairly uniform between the ESV and New King James, as the ESV reads, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. However, Paul's word order is more literally to the in Colossae saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Now, we might smooth that out to read, to the saints in Colossae and faithful brothers in Christ. But in terms of the structure that Paul uses, what makes it especially interesting is the position of the prepositional phrases in Colossae and in Christ. They, they bookend this part of the sentence so that in between Colossae and Christ, you have saints and faithful brothers. Now, maybe pointing this out seems unnecessarily tedious, but the theological point that Paul is making is marvelous. Here he's writing to these saints and faithful brothers, and they're identified by their actual geographical location in this world, and also by their actual spiritual location and status, if you will, in Christ. They belong to both and in both. They have a dual status or dual citizenship. And Paul is referring to them in this manner, treating this reality as if, well, it's rather obvious and commonplace, but also wonderfully profound. The expression of faith of these saints, of these faithful brothers, is manifest in this world, upon the earth, in the context in which they live, even as it is dictated by the life that they have in Christ, the standard for which is directed by the commands of Christ in His Word. But what about these terms that Paul uses to describe the Colossian church? What, what are saints? Well, we might think that saints is simply another term for Christian, and that's fine to a degree. Even more, the term uh, can mean holy ones or set-apart ones, giving the impression that there's a difference or a distinction. And again, that's another generally correct understanding of the term. But we also have to understand the more specific application that those who are holy, those who are set apart, are those who have sanctuary access and privileges. Think about the people of Israel. They were set apart, even as we read about in Exodus 19. They were a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But not everyone had sanctuary access to the same degree, did they? No, the priest could get closer than the people and the high priest closer still. Well, that's changed in the work of Christ and His fulfillment of the Old Testament types and shadows as related to the sanctuary. Now, all of those who are in Christ have sanctuary access. That's no small thing. And when do you receive this access? Well, at your baptism, when you're baptized into Christ. It's then that you become a member of His royal priesthood. You take your place as a citizen of the holy nation that is the church. When the veil of the temple in the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, 
at, at the crucifixion of Jesus, the direct way into the Holy of Holies in heaven was established. Christ is in heaven, and those who are in him have direct sanctuary access, which is part of the theology expounded upon at the end of Hebrews 4, where we're encouraged to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Well, not only does Paul refer to these believers as saints, but also as faithful brothers. Notice a couple of things first. Um, first, these Colossians, the, these Colossian saints, fall into a similar category with Timothy, since he's also referred to as a brother. Once again, Paul is using this familial language to refer to the church, even as the church takes this priority of place on the other side of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Yes, there's still a place for the natural family, but that family has to be reborn through the church. The biological family is dead in Adam and must be made new through Christ, the second Adam. Second, Paul calls the Colossians faithful brothers. Well, they're, they're firmly committed. They're steadfast. They're trustworthy. Certainly, that's high praise from the apostle and a reputation for saints, for brothers, for Christians to have. Then in his greeting, Paul imparts, he prays, grace to you and peace from God our Father. These brothers of Paul, of course, have a common father in God, the Heavenly Father. And Paul asks for grace and peace to come to them. What is grace? Grace is God's favor, at the very least, and can even be considered God's favor with riches. Or as one scholar puts it, the dynamic, outreaching generosity of God which the Colossians had experienced through the gospel and the Spirit. The God's grace came to them and set them apart as saints, and it's by God's grace that they're able to remain faithful as brothers. But Paul also confers peace upon them. Peace. Shalom has deep roots in the Old Testament. Certainly, it conveys the idea of a lack of conflict, but also conveys a holistic view of life. When we have peace with God, then we can have peace with other people, and then that peace should also flow out into society and affect the culture. Of course, peace was central to the angelic announcement of Jesus' birth and what he came to bring. Central to the gospel message is how Christ dealt with the hostility, the dividing wall between God and man and man and man through his sacrificial death upon the cross, even as Paul articulates in Ephesians chapter 2. But from that fundamental peace, more peace should come. More peace should be produced by those who know and understand the gospel by those who are in Christ. You know, the world outside of Christ doesn't have peace. It's in continual conflict. That was certainly true in the ancient world and is still true today, especially in lands or societies where the gospel hasn't reached or had a deep impact. And in societies where the gospel has been spurned or cast off, what do you observe? Rising conflict, war, and not peace. So Paul asked for fatherly favor and peace to be upon these faithful saints, for blessing to be bestowed upon these believers. And this grace and peace from the Father has come, has been manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, and continues to be provided for them through the continuing work of the Holy Spirit and the means 
that he uses. Well, while there have been some points here and there for us to consider along the way, what further bearing might Paul's opening remarks have upon us? Well, first consider what it means that we have sanctuary access. And let's ask ourselves uh, whether or not we take it, take it for granted. Of course, parting, having, part of having sanctuary access means that what we're about on Sunday mornings and our gathering together with the assembly in heaven is significant. You know, if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, you know this. But let's not be so accustomed to this privilege that we overlook it or think that it's such an ordinary thing. It's not. It's a remarkable reality and one that took the sacrificial death of the eternal Son of God to achieve. We draw into the throne room of the King of Kings, which means that we should conduct ourselves accordingly, dress accordingly, and so forth. But along with this theme of sanctuary access, do we take it for granted the other six days of the week? And we get to talk to God. Are we doing that on Monday through Saturday? Are you setting aside regular times for prayer, even just for even if it's just for a few minutes? which is perfectly appropriate. You know, there's, there's an Old Testament pattern for praying three times a day, particularly illustrated in Daniel's life. Are you praying at least once, if not twice a day? Are you giving thanks to the Lord for the life that He has given to you? Do you begin with gratitude, thanking Him for the redemption you have in Christ, and then moving into prayer concerning the work of the kingdom and how you can fulfill your part in that calling today? And if you find yourself spiritually dry, even to the point that you're not excited to be at worship, that it's a chore, or you're not getting much out of the teaching, etc., then one of the best ways to gauge your spiritual health is your prayer life. Again, I'm not advocating hours a day in prayer, but a concerted, earnest setting aside a few minutes a day to commune with your Heavenly Father. And in your praying, pray out loud. Talk to God. He's there. He's a real person. Don't simply try to pray in your mind. There may be moments when that's appropriate, but I would argue that should be the exception and not the rule. Praying out loud will help your concentration in prayer. Your mind is less likely to wander and help you be more organized in your thoughts and also help you to keep from just thinking about praying instead of actually praying. Sanctuary access is important on Sunday, but it's also important the other six days of the week. So don't take it for granted, but engage in the privilege that is prayer. Second, let us consider the challenge of what it means to be faithful. You know, are you a faithful brother or sister in the Lord? Are you faithfully talking to God in prayer? Are you faithfully tithing? Are you faithfully training your children up in the fear and admonition of admonition of the Lord, providing them with a Christian education? Are you trustworthy and steadfast as a believer? Are you reliable? And consider that faithfulness is an important attribute in cultivating maturity. Because someone who is faithful is going to plod along in obedience in the same direction in accordance with the Word of God. It's the mark of an immature Christianity that goes after the latest fads or is constantly seeking for spiritual novelties. 
And there will be more to say on this in weeks to come. But some of that seeking after novelty can also be in going back to Old Testament rituals or practices and thinking they're more genuine, glorious, or authentic. They're not. They might be interesting to consider from a historical perspective, but do not confer any greater spiritual benefit to you as a believer. The Old Testament sacrificial system, the Passover, and all the rest were fulfilled in Christ, and as Christians, we shouldn't be acting as if Christ hasn't come. Again, more on that when we get there in in chapter 2, but but good for us to give a bit of consideration to here at, at the outset to percolate in our thinking a bit. And third and finally, as a church that has been placed in a small town, albeit a very nice one in many respects, let us consider how Paul's call to maturity over the course of the letter has as much to say to us in our context as it did to the church in Colossae and theirs. Granted, many of us do not live in Franklin, in Franklin proper. Nevertheless, the principle applies to us wherever we physically live to consider our status and calling in Christ and the bearing that has on how we conduct ourselves in this world and the life which we're to fully pursue pursue holding this dual citizenship. And the message of Colossians is for us. As one theologian eloquently states, we too need to become mature as Christians and as human beings. We need to grow in our knowledge of who God is, of what He has done for us in Jesus Christ, and of how we can express our gratitude in worship and life. We too need the warning that true maturity, whether Christian or human, is not to be had by any other road. So Paul's glorious letter to the church in Colossae is open before us, rich and inspiring, compelling and convicting, and all to a small-town church like us. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for these ancient words that you have put in writing that come to us freshly this day. Indeed, may your spirit impress them further upon our hearts and lives that we may bear faithful fruit to your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom. Grant these things by the help of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.